0: Hello, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion of Land Ministries. Welcome to our Sabbath day Torah study. This year, we are going through each of the portions, emphasizing how uh, the Torah is for all people. Now, I'm going to be a little bit challenged with this particular Torah portion because we're beginning with the book of Leviticus. We're in the very first portion, which is called Vayikra. And of course, uh, when people think of, uh, especially a lot of my Christian brethren, think of the law, the law of Moses, that the one book that kind of stands out as being the worst of the lot for them is the book of Leviticus. It's all about sacrifices and priests and, and things like that. And they have no identity with it. They can't relate uh, to it at, at, at all. And, they, and, of course, they, they summarize, super summarize the whole discussion by saying, well, uh, the Messiah, when he came, he was the final sacrifice, and therefore we don't need sacrifices. So I don't need to go back and study or know anything about what were the ancient sacrificial system in the temple. I don't need to know that because, you see, Yeshua is my final sacrifice, and that's the only one I have to worry about. Let me just address that point before we get into this book By saying as absolutely flawed teaching the Messiah was a sacrifice force he was the lamb of God sacrifice meaning he was a lamb that was brought by God to be sacrificed now the whole sacrificial system is what men bring to be sacrificed we bring it to an altar which is the table of God so that God and man can be reconciled. And in this portion, I'm going to emphatically point out to you that the entire sacrificial system that is given to us in Leviticus is setting the stage for why we have to have a Lamb of God sacrifice, because none of these sacrifices are going to address the problem that we have with willful, defiant sin against God intentional sin according to the law merits death. So, let's just stop for a moment and think about that. Now, how if I can't bring a sacrifice, if I can't bring a bull or a goat or a lamb that will cover my sins that are willful and defiant against God, what what am I going to do? How how can I possibly be reconciled to God because uh, it, it, what the law teaches is if you make a mistake, you can make amends and that you should be forgiven. If you make a mistake and you make amends, you can be forgiven. And by the way, amongst us, we do it ourselves. If your friend didn't intentionally mean to do harm to you or damage your equipment, if he comes and apologizes and shows remorse to you, you will be compelled to forgive them. In fact, the Messiah taught that we should do that. That's not, that is the law of Leviticus. That is the teaching of Leviticus, the basis of why we should forgive an unintentional act, something by mistake, that we should forgive. Even mistakes done between, I will even say this, even if someone comes and steals from you if he makes the proper amends, and, and so forth, and he comes to you, you are supposed to forgive him just as the way that you're forgiven. Well, I can tell you what happens with the way God forgives me. He forgives me of all of my sins because of the sacrifice of Yeshua. And he tells me I should forgive the sins of other men if they too come and apologize and make amends to me. I should forgive them. And you, of course, heard of many families Uh, where there was a a murderer who came in and and slaughtered members of their family, and the other family members, because of their faith in God, said, I forgive them. Now, they still have to go to prison. They still have to make amends for what they've done, but I forgive them. I'm not going to allow that bitterness and that harm to hurt me any further from what they have done. Where do we get those principles from? The book of Leviticus. From the sacrificial system, these principles are taught. That's what's taught here. So while the Christian community would like to say, well, none of this has a bearing on them anymore, that would be a huge mistake. Now, going back to the answer of the question of, well, what are we going to do if we've done willful, defiant sin against God? And this book says you deserve death. How do we overcome the ordinances that are against us that demand that justice from us well the answer is that we have a sacrifice that's been brought by god and specifically offered for us in other words if god is the one who does the forgiveness of it we truly have forgiveness if he says that i'm going to separate your sins from me as far as east is from west and he says and and Paul talks about this in Galatians 2.20. It says where he took the ordinances that were against us, the death sentence against us, and that was what was nailed to the cross. He paid the price for that. He suffered the death that we should have suffered, and God sees that as a substitute for us and is then willing to grant us life. We're coming up very shortly for Passover season, we're coming up uh, this springtime where we're going to see the story again about how God can offer a lamb that will be the redemption for us. It'll purchase us out of all of the penalties of sin, all of the trauma, all the, it'll pass us from death to life. And the whole logic of this is what the Torah is teaching particularly the sacrificial system. So occasionally people get caught up in the details of it. Oh, the regulations of the priests and how they had to do it and so forth. May I suggest to you that you're about to be surprised because the very principles that are expressed in that is exactly what is taught by the Messiah and the apostles in the New Testament. The principles in the New Testament that we cling to originate from the Torah, so with that motivational statement uh, to get your interest in the book of Leviticus, let's open it up fresh and open our hearts up to it and see what we have really been instructed in. And right off the bat, the first word in this book in the Hebrew is vayekra. And Leviticus is called the book of Vayikra. Vayekra means and call. He's called. Comes from the words then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, "Speak to the, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When my, any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering in animals from the herd of the flock." Now, before I go any further, let's talk about the word "call." Va'yikra. The word "call" is used um, quite extensively within our faith. Um, This is God called Moses to do something. He challenged him. He he asked for him to establish the following things. He gave instruction to him as to what to do. The same thing is true of any person who begins to do spiritual things. A teacher is called. A pastor is called. Those who serve uh, the brethren, they're called. Of the Lord to do those things they hear something said to them they get something communicated to them they feel that that's what they should do they've been called to do it and in fact this word Vayikra in the Hebrew when you go through and actually see the Hebrew words a very interesting thing is present as you look at the scroll the last letter of the word Vayikra is the letter Aleph first letter of the Hebrew alphabet the scribes make that letter smaller than the other letters in the word it's called the small Aleph and Aleph is the the one and so here's what is understood when you are called by God you individually personally you just you then your person becomes smaller so that God can become greater in you. And the task that you go to do is to diminish you and assert the things of God through your life. Uh, If you remember, John the Baptist uh, referred to himself in this very direct way. I must become smaller so huge will become greater. You know, he knew his call to be the forerunner of the Messiah. He's literally giving you the teaching of the small olive from the word Vagikra. Now, it's very timely and very appropriate for him to do that since John the Baptist was a Levite priest. And he knew what this call to the priesthood meant. And he knew what the call to God meant. And so he, and, and those of us who are in ministry and have been, quote, called to the ministry, one of the things that we sense innately or we have been instructed in is that we set aside our lives to focus on the priorities of the things of God. And we're not talking about just obedience, we're talking about that you set aside the plans of your life, you set aside the goals of your life to pursue the goals of God's kingdom and, and his, his ministries. Um, when I was um, uh, a demonstration to that is, there came a point in my life, in my 40s, in which that I set aside my aerospace career, my, my career path toward engineering, and I suddenly took up the task of serving the Lord and ministering with the Lord that's an example of that. It's dramatic. It affects you strongly, changes your livelihood, uh, changes your friendships, your relationships, because now you make the emphasis be on the things of the Lord. Levites were called from birth because they were biologically born as descendants of Aaron, the sons of Aaron. They were called from birth, And they all were told and recognized that when they were called like this, that the decision was made for them by God. Therefore, it was their destiny to fulfill this call. And that's how the book of Leviticus starts out. It's instructions to the priests. And the first teaching principle is you've been called to serve the Lord's table. You're not here to serve your own table. Now, does that mean, well, you can't go do other things? No, of course not. It says that your priority, though, your principal priority of your life, your destiny, is to fulfill that call, depending on what that is and how God manifests it for it. So with that as an uh, opening statement, the priests have been called. Let us see what the instructions are. Now, let me go ahead and also tell you in advance, what you're going to hear in this portion of uh, yikri is going to get kind of repeated in the very next portion. We're going to go through a series of sacrifices here, but this part of the instruction is what is instructed that the priests are to tell the people how they can participate. Now let me let me give you a case in point. It's like the words I read to you, when any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, These are the instructions for when you, who aren't priests, who haven't been called to the priesthood, when you want to bring an offering to the Lord, this is what you will do. In the very next portion, it will go through the same list, but instead it will say, this is the law of that, and now that's the requirements on the priests as to how they will handle the same sacrifice. You see, in bringing a sacrifice before God, there has to be the work of a priest, and then there has to be the person who brings the offering. By the way, you cannot make an offering to God of any type without the evidence and the work of a priest. It's impossible. No offering can be brought of its own. Let me take you to the principle. When Yeshua began his public ministry first guy he ran into was John the Baptist, a Levite priest. As he appeared before him, what were the words of John the Baptist? Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That priest just now said that's a sacrifice. That can be accepted. Had that priest not said that, Yeshua would have been offering himself unacceptable offering before God. It requires a priest. God has set this system up. There must be an intermediary for you to be reconciled to God. You cannot do it of your own. He has set this system up and said this is the way it works. Um, In the case of you and I, we don't have the temple system and you didn't go to a Levite priest, did you? You came before God, but who did you come before? Our great high priest after the order of Melchizedek, Yeshua of Nazareth. And you pled your case to him. And what did he do? He turned around and became the intercessor and the advocate for you to make the presentation of the sacrifice for you on your behalf. That's the reason why the Lamb of God, that's the reason why he was the one that was sacrificed. So he could make the offering to his father on our behalf just like the Levite is the one that's going to take your lamb or goat or whatever, and he's going to be the one who presents it on the altar before the Lord. Where do we get these principles? Right from this book, right from this Torah. The New Testament, the whole sacrificial system of how you can be forgiven of God, of your sins, is based on these principles that come from the Torah. Now, if you're looking for a reason how does the Torah apply to me, may I suggest to you that right off the bat, <laughs> you can't be saved without these principles. You better hope this Torah stuff really works. You better hope this sacrificial system that God instituted really works because whether you realize it or not, you're depending on it so that Yeshua is qualified to be the Lamb of God sacrifice for you. Can you imagine the absurdity of claiming that you believe in Yeshua and you dismiss the very principles of the work of the sacrifice that he does for you according to God's standards, and you dismiss it as saying it doesn't apply to you? Whether you realize it or not, you just negated the sacrifice of Yeshua. You have to come before God according to his rules, not according to your rules, not according to your ideas. Well, I kind of felt like sorry about what I did, and, that, that, and God, he's, he's a nice God, he's going to go. Don't work that way. God is a righteous, true judge. You go into a courtroom today, you're going to discover there's quite a bit of protocol. You stand when the judge comes in. You treat him with respect and honor. The attorneys are your advocates. You don't speak out of turn. You don't decide what the rules in the courtroom are. In fact, if you misbehave in the courtroom, you'll be held in contempt and you'll be punished for that. Can you imagine what happens if you come into the temple of God? with a working priesthood and they're there to solve the problems of God being reconciled to men? Can you imagine if you were to operate with contempt toward his altar, toward his temple, toward him being the one true judge? It's mind-boggling to me the blasphemy and the absurdity of how we as believers of Yeshua would in any way, shape, or form diminish or devalue this instruction. It is essential to our salvation. It's essential to atonement and reconciliation uh, with God. Now, let me read to you um, this first sacrifice, and it's fitting that this is the first one that's given. It's a whole burnt offering of a bull, the, the highest form of offering that can be made. Verse 3, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. What did I just tell you? For you to be accepted by the Lord for this process, you have to meet at one particular place. And guess who you're meeting when you go to the doorway of the tent of the meeting? A priest. The priest is the one who meets you at the door. You don't just walk in. The priest is the one who's going to take your sacrifice. You're going to tell the priest what this sacrifice is for, why, what you're here to do business for. He's the one who's going to make the determination as to whether or not this is going to go forward. The requirements are it better be a male and it better be without defect. Guess what the priest, the first thing he's going to do, When you announce, well, I've got this bull here. I want to make an offering to the Lord. I want to make a whole burnt offering. You know what the priest is going to do? He said, let me check it out first. Once he checks it out, once it passes the test with him, he will then announce in the temple, we have a whole burnt offering to be brought before the Lord. And at that moment, that fellow that brought that thing is going to follow all the instructions that the priests say. In fact, it has to be slain on that particular side of the altar. You can't just bring it into the court and go, I'll go ahead and slay it over there and then we'll bring it. No, no, no. There's a particular facing to the altar that all sacrifices have to have. In fact, one of the things you'll learn in this portion is there is the northward, the eastward, and the tent, the doorway of the tent of the meeting. Those are the three places that sacrifices are slain and they're prepared for the altar. And different ones are put at different particular places. Sheep and goat are on the north side of the. Birds are always then on the east side of the altar. These are the temple protocol. These are the requirements. The priests are the ones who carry this out. And it's telling the person bringing their offering, this is what's going to happen when you bring this sacrifice. The priests are going to assist you, and this is the way it's going to be done. You don't get to just walk in. Well, I've got a, got a turtle dove here. I'm going to go ahead and offer this to the Lord. Let me go ahead and kill it. Okay, and he's required to kill the sacrifice. The priest doesn't kill the sacrifice. The person offering the sacrifice must take its life. He must lay his hands on the animal put the burden of his soul upon it. He has to acknowledge before God, God, please accept the sacrifice, all that I'm here to do. I put the burden of my life on it. This will be my substitute. And then he has to slay it. Um, Why why would he have to be the one to slay it? Because you're supposed to be coming and you're supposed to be changing you. You're supposed to be cutting you, offering you up onto the altar, for, to be reconciled with God. It, it's the real restitution of your soul. I will. And, and doesn't Paul tell us that when we come into the faith, that the old man dies so that the new man can come forth as a new creation, creation of God? We're supposed to come and slay ourselves before the Lord so that he'll rise us in newness of life. That's pictured. The principle of it is how you present a sacrifice. I've shared this story before. Uh, Many years ago, I had a good friend from Israel travel here to the U.S. And um, there's some other brethren that were down in the southern part of the state here. And we all decided that we would... um, all get together, have some fellowship together. Well, the fellow that was down there had a herd of goats, and he made the suggestion that they were going to take a yearling goat and they would prepare it on the spit, and this guy from Israel would come down, and we'd all come down, eat hummus and goat, and and so, you know, just like biblical kind of menu. And uh, they said, you know, come on down at uh, 1 o'clock, and uh, we'll, we'll be ready to eat." So he loads up, and it was a little bit of a drive down there, as I recall, and we got down there. We arrived at 1 o'clock, and they said, well, um, actually, the food won't be ready until about 4. I said, oh, oh, so it takes a little longer on the spit? And he said, no, it doesn't take a little longer on the spit. It's just that at 8 o'clock this morning, when I went out there to uh, kill the goat, why I, I couldn't do it. All of a sudden it hit me what you should have done for me and I, I bawled my eyes out and it took me three hours to get up the courage to cut its throat. I also known of stories, I know it was personally of a story of a man who offered a lamb, he cut him. He cut the lamb and some of the blood spilled over onto his hand lamb went over and licked the blood off of his hand he passed out the picture's too powerful the innocent has lost his life because of us because of me and we know that's that's an unbelievable price cost that's what used to happen in the temple Historically, what used to happen in the temple was different people would bring their animals, and uh, they would present it to the priests at the doorway of the tent. If they went over to one side of the altar, if it was a goat or a sheep, or they were at the doorway with a bull, and they had these altar rings. They had these rings that were built into the floor where they would insert the animal into the ring, hold his head and shoulders. And then a series of other priests would, would hold, secure the legs with ropes and lines. It took 20 priests to slay a bull. It took at least seven priests to do the sacrifice of a goat or lamb to hold the lamb, the animal still, so it didn't run wild, and so that the person offering the sacrifice could come up and slit its throat and slay it. But what would typically happen is they would get everything ready to go, And the man would come in, and they'd hand him the the knife. And he would just emotionally collapse. He'd be on his face before God, bawling his eyes out. The the weight of what was getting ready to take place would just massively hit him. And at this point, this is where the, the skill of the priest came in. At some point, the priest would make a determination that I don't think he's got the strength to do this and so the priest would offer to him would you like me to assist you and the man usually would say yes and so while his face is down in the dust of the temple the priest would then slit the throat capture the blood he'd be laying there on his face seeing the blood presented to the altar the other priest would be skinning the sacrifice and parsing it, getting ready to go up. And he would still be on his knees when the priest would carry it up on the altar. I'll tell you, there's something in the future that I'm really looking forward to, and I'm not quite sure how the world is going to react. Well, on one respect, I do not know how they'll react. We know the prophecy says there's a day coming when the altar will get rebuilt in Jerusalem. And that the daily sacrifice, the morning and evening lambs, will be offered on the altar. And I think there's a very good possibility that this will be made visible to the people of the world. They will learn what this is all about. I think the people who hate God, um, animal rights activists, whatever group you want to throw into the mix, when they see... What takes place? They will have an utter fit. They will lose it. They will go nuts. But I think another group, believers in the Lord, I think people who love the Lord, is going to shatter our souls when we see a real sacrifice of a lamb. You know, for it. When it talks about the training of the priests that's going on in Israel, it has to deal with all of these things. They have to learn to contain their emotions and do the work of the priest. They have to learn how to butcher the animal, parse the animal, inspect the animal. There's a lot of stuff they have to It's not just carrying it up on the altar. There's a lot of human reaction that has to be ministered to. And our advocate, the Messiah, knows how to comfort us, knows how to speak directly to our souls and help us through the process. He does it just like a priest used to be, a good Levite priest would do uh, when they would bring the sacrifice. All right, so... In the case of uh, the sacrifice of being brought, there's very specific requirements about how it had to be opened up and what had to be done. The lobe of the liver, the fat, the entrails, certain things had to be washed. The legs and the kidneys all had to be washed before they were taken up. Um, That the animals parsed into parts where it could be carried up. And they would, by carried up, they would take the head as a part and the legs and the the body and so forth. And when they put it on the pyre of the fire, they had to be arranged in the shape of the animal. In other words, you couldn't just slap a bunch of meat up on there and you didn't care what the pieces were. No, the priest had to arrange it so it was that animal that was being offered to the Lord. And that was was consumed. Now, a whole burnt offering is exactly what it was called. The whole thing is given to the Lord. It goes up on the pyre, and it does not come back off the pyre until it's pure ash. However, all other sacrifices, there's a much, much different way of doing it. In that case of other sacrifices, portions of of the feast went to the priest. It would go on the altar. It would be burned for a while. Pulled, certain portions would be pulled off. The priesthood would eat that. Certain portions would be pulled off and given to the person who brought the offering. Why? So they could take it home and hold a feast to the Lord and invite their family and their friends to come join with them. I have been reconciled to the Lord, and this is the sacrifice that was offered that he accepted. And they would make a feast and a celebration out of it. The, um, the, the, the best picture I can give to you of what this looked like is the same thing when we as a family all get together for Thanksgiving. You know, the, we make a big deal about the turkey, right? Okay, gotta have turkey. Uh, well, they used to make a big deal about this too. What was the animal to be done? Now, obviously, a, a, a rich, rich, wealthy man would offer bulls. Maybe somebody of middle class wouldn't have a sheep or a lamb or a goat, which was the common uh, sacrifice of the land. It was a very common. Goat was the most common sacrifice that was put on the altar. Or a poor person who could bring a pigeon or a turtle dove. Now, in the case of the pigeon and the turtle dove, there wasn't any that came back. And by the way, there's a very interesting procedure with regard to that 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 it would be brought in and the priest is the one who would slay it. And he would wring its neck and take its head clean off the bird and they would dump the dirt upside down and sprinkle the blood around the altar. He would put the blood up, as the bird is, its blood is draining out. Then he would break the wings but not separate them, spread it out and the wings would be spread and then it was put onto the altar in that way, so that it would look like the full display of the bird, you know, before the Lord. There were some very interesting details that are given here, a very specific protocol on how sacrifice would be done. Now, maybe you want to ask the question, well, why? Why would, why would he want it to be done exactly that way? I, I don't know if you have this kind of relative in your family, but when I was growing up, why? my grandmother, my aunts if you went to their house and you were going to have a dinner there there was definitely a protocol to come to their table there were particular napkins they would use particular plates and china they would be arranged onto the table in a particular way in fact most of us we've learned a little etiquette where you learned how to put silverware in the proper places how to eat properly you know even goes so far as to when, you know, you don't scoop soup this way. You scoop your spoon this way and then take a bite. You know, you don't look like you're hogging like a trough. You make it look like you're enjoying the soup. And elbows have got to stay off the table. Okay? Got to wash your hands before you come to the table. Okay? You have to be careful about what you say at the table. And if you're going to leave the table, you ask to be excused from the table. That was the protocol I grew up with. Most of us in my age group know all about that. It's sad that the generation that's around today has no idea about that. And the reason why I say it's sad is because that protocol is very similar to what the Lord specified on how you bring stuff to my table. There's a very definite protocol. And in fact, it was a treat to eat at grandma's table. It was special to be at the table of the family in that way. And it was special to go to the temple and to offer your sacrifice to be presented to the altar as well. Today, you know, we eat standing up, we eat fast food, barely do we make it to the table. Sometimes we remember to say grace, sometimes not. You know, kids start eating before the rest of the people are even at the table. We've lost something really really important that's wholesome and necessary to enrichment and endearment within the family we have lost this in this generation um, the same kind of protocol is what enriched the faith of the people who came to see the Lord of the temple this was special this was important there was a right way to do this And part of your training to live in Israel and to go to the temple was you had to have people assist you and teach you how to do this. The priests would have their responsibilities. But as family members, a father would take a son to show him this is how you go to the temple. This is how you go see the Lord to be reconciled to what's going on in your life. Now, there's a couple other things I want to tell you about these offerings here. There was also the offering of what's called the grain offering in the libation. Um, the grain offering was had to be made with fine flour. And you would mill this flour and sift it to where that would be like the most perfect flour. That was the you, you can't just mill flour and then go take it to the Lord. It has to be fine flour. Uh, my grandma and those that do baking, well, you get a sifter, you know, that little screen thing that flips, and you take the, the, the flour out of your canister, out of the bag, and you put it in that, and you sift it to make it fine flour before you try to bake anything, before you try to use the flour, you sift it, and so it makes for a lighter bread, and so forth. Let me tell you what the test was for the priest for fine flour. He would have the container of flour. The priest would take his hand and not touch the flour, just hold his hand above the flour, the surface of the flour, and hold it there for a few moments. Then he would pick his hand up and if just the magnetism of his hand had drawn the fine parts of the flour up to where he had flour on his hand, that was fine flour. If you, next time you're at home and you have some flour out, lay it on a plate put your hand down don't quite touch it and see if you can get the flour to come up on your hand until it does that it's not fine flour that flour is not acceptable on the altar until it can do that it almost has to have a life of its own it's that light and sifted that well so the requirement was for fine flour and there was another thing that had to be done um all sacrifices had to have salt put on them and in fact a poor man's offering was usually one of two things this is a poor man who can't even afford a turtle dove a poor man would come to the temple and by the way the instruction was you don't go to the temple empty-handed you bring something so a poor person who had nothing the one thing he did have access to that he could get was salt and um, pieces of fig wood, dead fig wood. They would use the fig wood as the fuel for the altar. Never, ever was olive wood used as fuel on an altar. The preferred fuel was fig. And the reason why is because the fig is a soft wood, it burns quickly and produces an intense hot fire which is exactly what you want on the altar, and it burns down to ash quickly so that they can do it frequently. Olive wood will sit there and build coals and so forth. Um, Blessed olive was the symbol of the nation, was fig has always been the symbol of that which is judged. Remember the fig tree that was cursed by, that was a, that was a symbology that, uh, that he's the judge and he's the one who will judge the world for their failing to produce fruit, fruit for God. Um, and so throughout, and then everybody has a fig tree. Remember mm-hmm. that? Why would everybody have a fig tree? Well, one, it makes for great shade. I have sat under fig trees in Israel. They have beautiful shade trees. They have big leaves, so they shade real good. Uh, fig, uh, also the fruit that comes in in the spring and then later on in the fall, is a sweet fruit. It's, it, it's, I mean, it's delicious. You take a fig down, you peel it open, you eat the inside of it, it's delicious. And I've eaten figs there as well. But it also carries with it a great spiritual significance. That's the wood that's used on the altar. And there's a meaning to fig leaves you remember that in the Garden of Eden it was fig leaves they tried to cover themselves with in Israel fig leaves are referred to as excuses and when a person tries to cover themselves in excuses it won't work you will just be embarrassed if you try to cover your nakedness in fig leaves because they don't quite cover as good as you think they are even though they're big leaves Uh, Every person has a fig fig tree, shade, fruit, and they recognize I'm not bringing excuses to the Lord. I will take responsibility for my life with the Lord, and I'll I'll use the way the Lord, I'll do do what the Lord wants instead of me uh, for it. Um, So every sacrifice that would go up would have uh, salt put on it. Now there's a lot of logic to that. The, fed, the, the, the poor person would bring the salt, and that they had literally had a chamber in the temple, uh, one of the quartered rooms there in the temple in Jerusalem, that was just the salt room. L- a large amount of salt, because people would bring salt a lot. They, I call it temple litter. They would scatter that on the floor, and salt will absorb blood and contaminants and they were able to keep the whole place sanitary, even though they're butchering multiple animals. That by sprinkling salt onto the sacrifice after the skin's come off, flies stay away from it. It absorbs the blood, it helps to cleanse the tissue. Koshering a good steak at home requires you to take the steak, wash it, and take kosher salt. Sprinkle kosher salt, you make a coating of salt, and you let it sit there for a little bit, and it, it, that salt sucks out the rest of the blood of it, and then you wash it again. And then you cook your steak. That's koshering a steak at home. You use salt. And so all sacrifices had salt on them. That's the reason why all of the covenants of God, from the one with Adam, all the way up to the one that will be in the Millennial Kingdom, they're called the salt covenant. Because the sacrifices, the making, the deal, the reconciliation with God, includes salt. And besides that, salt is an eternal thing here in the creation. Um, Salt outlasts you. Salt will outlast your life. But so if you're associated with salt, it keeps you cleaner uh, from disease and impure things. And at the same time, it, it has an eternal aspect. Animals won't last, but salt will. And so the everlasting covenants that God has made with it are referred to as salt covenants. And all the sacrifices had salt uh, put on them uh, as well for it. And these are, those are some of the things that are even specified here in this portion. Again, these instructions were given so that you would understand that when you come before the Lord uh, to be reconciled to the Lord, uh, to receive atonement, and atonement doesn't mean that you get saved, it means you've been reconciled to God. Redemption is what leads to salvation, but atonement is... You have the benefits of salvation, you have the benefits of redemption, and you've now been reconciled to God uh, for it. And so these sacrifices would illustrate how to be reconciled to God. Now, there's a very interesting provision that's given in here, particularly uh, it coming up in Leviticus, that we'll talk about, most all of these sacrifices are talking about unintentional sins. Only one intentional sin is mentioned in this portion, and it has to do with if you sin against another person. And let uh, me the um, well let me summarize it for you because um, I think I can do it pretty quickly. Um, The law said that if you intentionally sin against a person, that you have to make restitution. And the general principle was that you have to restore whatever it is, the value of whatever it is that you intentionally did to the person, plus one-fifth. That's the key. It's you make restitution, but you add one-fifth to it. Now, this is tricky math here in the Hebrew. Let me tell you, for you to understand, let me tell you what it is. Let's say that it's 100 coins uh, that you, that you, that is the restitution amount. One fifth, are you ready? Is 25 more coins. Not because 20, that's 25%, that's a quarter. No, no, no. You need to be thinking about the whole, you need to be thinking about when it's all reconciled. So one-fifth meant it was 25, because the whole now is 125, and that's the one-fifth. 25 is the one-fifth of the whole after the restitution is done. It's a very tricky kind of math thing, because we don't normally think of percentages in that way, or fractions in that way, but in this system, if you had to add one-fifth to it, if the value is 100, then the one-fifth portion is 25 so that that 25 is now one-fifth of the whole, um, the whole thing that's been, been made restitution to it. Um, and here's the other. The law specified that if this was, had to be done, restitution had to be paid, You don't get to bring your sacrifice to God to ask for forgiveness and reconciliation with God until you've been reconciled to that guy. You remember the instruction? You know, if you bring alms to the Lord, you set it down to the base of the altar, you go back and you get that thing straightened out with your brother first. Then you come back and make your sacrifice to me. God says, I will not accept your sacrifice if you don't make restitution to your brother first. It's just on hold. I know for a fact, that because people have not been taught the Torah, and they didn't understand what Yeshua was talking about in this principle, that they've wronged a lot of other people. And they've decided to just forget it. Ignore the person they wronged. And then they go back and they try to make amends with the Lord later on in their life doesn't work that way you have to go back and make amends first then the Lord will accept the the offering that you come and be reconciled to you I think there's a lot of people that are going to come before the Lord and they are going to find out that this Torah principle here had more to do with their future than they ever possibly understood so my theme to you is the Torah is for all people you might want to pay attention to this part of the Torah you might want to pay attention to the law of Moses with regard to what is the Lord's protocol with the Lord the way the Lord works out uh, forgiveness how you bring sacrifices because this is how you get reconciled to God through this methodology and for all of those who want to dismiss this and say well I get all that from Yeshua You are sadly, sadly and terribly mistaken. I can assure you that Yeshua, as High Priest, adheres to these commandments made for this system. don't mean to chastise you, but there's a lot to learn here, and we need to learn it quick. Shalom to all of you. Thank you for joining us. This broadcast has been made possible by the Lord and by the generous donations of brethren like you. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and shalom.